Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. George Delgado, a family practice physician from California, who has become an expert in the effectiveness of various treatments for COVID, as well as working on various uh, litigation uh, in various states uh, regarding government overreach. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk to George because there's so much in the news about all these different potential treatments. However, before we get to the interview, we'd like to make you aware of an event that may interest you. Yes, Medicine's Integrity, Reclaiming the Doctor-Patient Relationship is the theme of the Catholic Medical Association's annual educational conference, which will be held virtually September 25th and 26th. And the CMA made the switch from in-person to virtual due to the COVID-19 pandemic but is excited to foster faith and fellowship as they can be national experts in areas of humanities, law, psychology, theology, and medicine to shine a light on important national and cultural issues that might compromise the doctor-patient relationship. Our conference keynote speaker will be EWTN anchor and award-winning journalist Raymond Arroyo. Also, pro-life activist Abby Johnson will join us. And attendees can earn up to 36 0.75 CME credit hours and have access to all of the talks throughout the end of the year. Registration is now open and more information is available on www.cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. We have a listener question from Felipe in Kansas who says he likes our podcast, even laughs at our jokes. He's really laying it on for us. So we thought that we would ask and answer his question. And his question is a long one, so we'll make it short. It's basically, he's very concerned and thinks he might be even obsessing about how much to clean horizontal surfaces and other surfaces like doorknobs with COVID. Andrew, where would you start answering Felipe's question? You know, I would I would start by saying this is part of the, the set of data that is we're kind of gathering as we get further and further into this coronavirus pandemic. You know, early on there was so much talk about surfaces, but since then the the idea has been that it may be possible rather than it's a primary way of getting the virus. So it's a potential way, but probably not do the amount of diligence that I know a lot of people are spending cleaning their mail, cleaning their food, this and that. It seems as though it's not a major mode of transmission. Yeah, there's no evidence right now that people have gotten it by touching items in a store or by by touching food. Uh, And if the surface is dry, the virus is going to die quickly. I uh, reached out to one of our experts that you've heard on the show, Dr. Paul Carson, Infectious Disease and Public Health in North Dakota. uh, And he said that uh, he agrees with what Andrew says. Uh, that the risk of getting COVID from a surface is very low. He'd recommend good cleaning at least once a day to surfaces that are touched by lots of people and using hand hygiene with a hand sanitizer or soap and water several times a day. But if you're getting anxious to the point that it's exhausting you, uh, it might be time to turn to a counselor or psychologist to find out you know, how you can uh, mitigate this because you don't want the worry to be getting in the way of your, your normal, happy daily life. A hundred percent. I think this this might be a symptom of the emotional stress that everybody's been under with this. Oh and my, yes. You, you've got to remember too, like with all viruses, the, the warm weather even denatures and breaks down the viruses quicker than the winters. So especially now in the summertime, you know, doorknobs and things like that, are are much safer. So good hand hygiene, obviously, but probably don't need to clean all the produce. (laughs) Very good. And we'll go to our patented medical trivia question of the day. According to data posted on the CDC's own website, as of August 12, 2020, there were 13,624 children under the age of 15 who've died in the United States since February 1st. My question, two-part, What percentage of these 13,000 children have died of COVID? And what percentage have died of influenza? As usual, you have to hang around till the end of the show to find out the answer. But we'll be back with our interview with Dr. George Delgado from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio here after the break. We're back with our special guest today, Dr. George Delgado. George has been on Dr. Doctor a couple times previously, and we bring him in here to talk about 
some of the therapeutic options and how helpful they are for COVID-19. He's been practicing medicine since 1989 in California. He got his bachelor's degree at St. Mary's College, his MD at University of California, Davis, and he's board certified in family medicine and hospice and palliative care. During the pandemic, he's been a medical analyst for COVID Planning Tools, which is a multidisciplinary group offering analysis of the pandemic as well as rational solutions and strategies for managing our public health response. And as listeners know, there's been a lot of irrational solutions and strategies. His group is using a Monte Carlo decision model that's proven to be more accurate than other models uh, to predict the pandemic. He's the medical director of a family practice group. He's the chief medical officer of a large hospice, and he's been providing expert medical advice in multiple litigations involving COVID-19. And toward the end of the interview, we want to get into some of that. But George, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, George, can you first review how the human body is thought to react normally to a virus such as SARS-CoV-2 and what kind of different innate chemicals it used to fight off that virus? Well, I'd like to use a brief analogy first, I think, to help listeners really get an idea of what it's like when, when the body encounters a foreign invader. Think about a fire in your house. You're, you have multiple layers of, of protection. So first of all, you have a lot of things built into the house, uh, things that are not flammable. In the kitchen, you have a lot of safety features. But let's say a, a pan catches on fire when you're cooking. The first thing you do is you try to cover it. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you bring out the fire extinguisher. If that doesn't work, you might have sprinklers in the house that turn on, or maybe you have a hose and you might start to spraying it down yourself. Then soon thereafter, of course, you're going to call 911 and the fire department comes. And the fire department is going to try to be as measured as possible. If they see the fire small, they just try to put it out. But if the fire is getting going, they may break the door down and really douse your house with uh, water. Um, it might be a really aggressive fire department that knows that the, if they're very aggressive, that they can put out the fire better. So they might come in and break the door down no matter what and, and douse the entire house and eventually the fire gets burnt out, but you also have a lot of collateral damage. Well, same thing kind of happens in the body. The body has a multi-layered immune system that fights off invaders. There's a surveillance system that's made of antibodies and T cells, and T's are, are white blood cells that are really just circulating around. They're, they're kind of like guard dogs going around and, and making sure that no invaders are coming in. George, George, where were you when they were trying to teach me immunology in medical school? I mean, you should have been there. This is great. Please continue. I just am admiring this. So the, um, then when an invader is detected, well, the body starts a response, and the response uh, uh, is antibody production to make more antibodies and antibodies, of course, neutralize. Think of the antibody as someone, uh, a officer with cuffs who comes over and cuffs the suspect. And then the uh, T cells do a very similar thing, but they also uh, have a, a communication system. And this communication system then uh, sends out signals and the communication system, we call these the cytokines. And cytokines are small peptides or small protein-like molecules that allow different cells in the body to communicate with one another. And the cytokines are in different categories, different groups of cytokines. One of the biggest groups is called the interleukins. They were originally called interleukins because they were uh, discovered that the white blood cells or leukin, leukin means white, communicated with each other with these, uh, with these chemicals. And there's a whole slew of them. Uh, there also are the interferons, two main categories, beta and alpha. The interferons are mostly antiviral, so very important when we talk about an infection like COVID. And then there are others uh, like tumor necrosis factor and a few others. Well, a lot of these cytokines um, do a couple of things. They can really ramp up the response. It can be like the, um, like the person on the radio saying, you know, emergency, emergency, send <laughs> all of the squad there, and then you get a really huge response. Or they can also be like the chief in charge of everything and say, okay, guys, we have this under control. You can settle down. Let's go about our business. And then things go, go well. So you can see, depending on the type of infection, if it's really, really a bad infection, then we want the whole squad there and we want all guns blaring to put out, uh, to catch this, uh, this villain. George, one, one of the things that we hear a lot about in the news is this idea of a cytokine storm. And, and that might be part of the problem with COVID. 
Can you describe what a cytokine storm is and how it may be important in determining the optimal treatment? Absolutely. So the cytokine storm is when all hands are on deck, when the dispatcher has said, we need everybody here, we got to bring in the backup troops. And so these cytokines, the ones that rev up the immune system, they're the ones who, that predominate. And so they're sending signals to all of their friends so that different types of white blood cells and macrophages, the neutrophils and others start to release chemicals in order to kill the viral invader. Now, killing the viral invader though is one of the things that happens, but the other thing is that there's collateral damage. Think about that fire we were talking about a second ago. This is when the firefighters are breaking down the door, when they're sending water from top, from bottom, from the middle, they're just flooding that house and you're getting a lot of damage from the water and from the firefighters breaking through the door and breaking through uh, different walls to control that fire. So the cytokine storm is the immune system actually overreacting to the virus and not modulating itself well enough. So what happens there is that you get a lot of collateral damage, you get what's called inflammation, increased blood flow, increased what we call permeability. That means the blood vessels get leaky, so you get fluid seeping into the tissues. You get destruction of the body cells themselves instead of just the virus. And you also get what we call a coagulopathy. You get the blood's um, clotting system, which is very intimately related to the immune system, go really on high alert and you start getting clotting in little tiny vessels, which is what can lead to other problems with the uh, And One the of the COVID things that happens, George, isn't it that the, the little air sacs in the lungs, the alveoli, they actually fill with a soup of fluid that contains these cytokines. Is that right? They, that is absolutely right. They do fill with this fluid and that leads to a, a, a condition that we've known about for a long time because it's a common pathway for many severe infections and that's adult respiratory distress syndrome. And so here you get fluid filling up and it's kind of like a, a, um, a sponge. If you have a sponge that uh, is nice and dry, that's kind of like the air sacs of the lung and air can get in there. And you can also see that a sponge that's nice and dry, it will sop up a, a, a puddle very well. But once that sponge is full of fluid, nothing is going to pass through it. And that's what happens with these lungs is they get full of, of this soupy fluid like you described. And then the air the oxygen can no longer pass through these very thin membranes. What happens, of course, when the oxygen can't pass through? Well, then your oxygen levels go down and you get even sicker and you get sicker. The cytokines say, okay, guys, we're not working hard enough and the storm grows and grows. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So the treatments we're going to talk about are going to look at either A, attacking the virus directly. We don't have many of those. Or B, trying to use things that the immune system makes that are helpful or C, stop this overreaction of the immune system. Would that be reasonable to say, George? Yes, yeah, so those are the, the basic strategies. Exactly. Okay, well, then let's start with the big one in the news, hydroxychloroquine, okay? It's been talked about more than any other drug for COVID. In fact, 15, 16 years ago, there were studies with the original SARS virus in cells from monkeys and other primates in the lab suggesting it would help. Uh, and then there were these small studies in March that were reported, and then all of a sudden, even the White House is promoting hydroxychloroquine. What is the reality now, August 2020, regarding hydroxychloroquine and COVID? Well, I think the, the short answer and the bottom line is we really don't know yet. It does show a, a lot of promise. As you said, we knew about it back in the SARS epidemic uh, because a, a lot of uh, Chinese researchers did some Lab, basic laboratory science studies. And those laboratory uh, studies were very good. And they show that in the laboratory, uh, in cells infected with the virus, the hydroxychloroquine does indeed block several steps in the viral invasion. So we know that in the lab anyway, it's great. And we know that it is an anti-inflammatory drug because it works great for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Right. So these are what really make this a very compelling candidate to, to be a, a drug. And so it has been studied, and I think rightfully so. What happened was I think uh, that certain people started to publicly tout it. I think some people were maybe being a little bit too effusive in the praise for it. And perhaps uh, people who were uh, normally uh, disagreeing with those, uh, with those different people started to attack it. And uh, just like you can have a cytokine storm 
in the body. <laughs> well, you, you can have a cytokine storm in the media, in the and media. the media had a cytokine <laughs> storm, hydroxychloroquine. And I think that's been very unfortunate because it's kind of blinded many researchers. It certainly blinded the government because hydroxychloroquine is a, is basically a very safe medicine that's that's been yes. used for years, as you well, know. And George, one of the things that I think confuses a lot of people is how there's so much disagreement, even in the medical community. And, you know, for example, I know there was at least two prestigious journals who published studies that said hydroxychloroquine was not effective, but then they ended up taking those back, retracting those. Um, what what would you say in regard to that and just the, the general disagreement, even among the medical community, about how to use that medicine? Yeah, well, it just shows, I think it shows that right now we're in a wild, wild west situation because things are moving so quickly that usually medical research is kind of a very deliberate process. We kind of take our time. We make sure that we're doing things right. We have peer review. Right now we have all these articles flooding the internet that, um, that are not peer reviewed. We have people, you know, holding press conferences. And most of these people are with good intentions. But these retracted studies, for example, these two studies, one in the Lancet, one in the New England Journal of Medicine, both have to do with data um, from a company called um, Surgisource. And essentially, it's a company that uh, has, has made uh, research data a commodity. And so you wonder how much the profit motive was in that. I think uh, the, the researchers, both were the same researchers on right. both papers, um, were, were rather embarrassed that they, that they trusted Surgisource and that they didn't look at the data themselves. When they asked Surgisource to look at the data themselves and have a third party review it, Surgisource refused, refused. So they're really handling this data almost like it's a proprietary thing. And I, I don't think that's good for medicine. I, I certainly think the profit uh, motive has to be there, but, um, but sometimes it gets in the way. Now, looking at the, the double-blinded studies published to date, I don't believe any of them have shown a benefit or a harm necessarily for hydroxychloroquine. Is that correct? That's right. There have been no double-blind studies showing a benefit. Um, one of them in the hospital setting, very sick patients did show increased harm with those um, taking hydroxychloroquine. So I think that has really painted part of the picture of the way I see hydroxychloroquine, that it's not a a good medicine for once society kind storm has started. It's more of a, an earlier um, medication to be used. And similar to uh, if, if you have a patient with pneumonia, for example, if the, you have an early pneumonia, you diagnose in the office, you give the patient oral antibiotics, most of the time they do well. Right. But if you wait until the patient is really sick on a ventilator and you give oral antibiotics, you're, you're just throwing a few drops at the storm. And so you really um, have to use medicines in their correct um, time frame. And so much of the criticism of hydroxychloroquine has been, well, we look, look at these great uh, double blind uh, randomized controlled trials and it didn't work. Well, that's true. It didn't work, but it only proves it doesn't work in that um, situation. Well, let's go so, earlier uh, on. Uh, University of Minnesota did a post-exposure prophylaxis study. Could you explain what that is to our listeners? Sure. So prophylaxis means prevention. And the study out of the University of Minnesota was actually in many respects very well done because um, when someone is exposed to uh, the SARS-2-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, there really is a, a window of opportunity for prevention there. And so the, um, what they did was they did an internet-based uh, uh, recruitment process, mm -hmm. people all over the country who had been exposed to a known person who had, who had a proven case of COVID-19. And then if, if they agreed to go into the study, they... Uh, overnight ship them a hydroxychloroquine and, um, and to see if it really made any difference. And so it turns out that um, in this study, it did not make a difference, but there were some, uh, some parts of the study that are a little bit concerning. Again, I think it's a, with all things considered a very well-designed study, but number one, the patients were relatively young and, you know, relatively young patients oftentimes are going to do well, no matter what happens. And so giving them a medication may not make a difference. Number two was the follow-up. They didn't prove that the people who got sick, who were exposed, had COVID-19. A large percentage of the um, patients were never tested because of the lack of availability of testing. Uh, in good point. Right now. So they just relied on symptoms. And I've been you know, managing a couple of healthcare organizations for the last several months. And I've been very surprised where we've had a couple of outbreaks where we had a, a, an, an employee who was exposed to a COVID-19 proven patient. 
she became sick and then gave a talk in front of a group of people. And then some of those people got sick. Well, I was treating them all as presumed COVID-19 cases and we were testing them. Of course, the test took seven to 14 days to come back, unfortunately. Well, it turned out that this person who gave the talk and everybody else who got sick later did not have COVID-19. All of their <laughs> tests were negative. And so what happened, we probably had a summer enterovirus that came in and caused yes. them all sick. So we don't know if that happened in any of these patients. Now, one could argue, of course, that the placebo group uh, might have been equally affected as the treatment group, but you never know for sure. So this just leaves a little question mark here. Again, I'm not saying that you should use uh, hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis, but I am saying that this was a good study. It's one step, but I'm not sure if it's the whole, the whole story. And George, one, one of the things that I've been dealing with a lot just even this last week or two is getting you know, literally dozens of phone calls and emails from patients requesting the drug, um, especially knowing that it's in short supply. Is there a standard of care for that right now? I'm, I mean, I think there's a lot of listeners who are probably struggling with how to respond to that. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there really is no standard of care. So here's where a physician's good judgment and prudence really comes into play. So I think the... Um, what, what I have done is I've discussed this with patients and if they're interested in taking the hydroxychloroquine, if I think it might help them and how, which group might it help? It probably would, would be a consideration those over 65, uh, those who are, um, have uh, chronic uh, medical conditions that, are, that might make them at increased risk for getting serious COVID-19 or those um, who are short of breath. And so, and I'm talking about people who have been already infected, not, not for prevention. And so these people all have what we call an informed consent discussion. And I'll say, you know, there's, there's some evidence that's suggestive of this. There's some basic science evidence. It's very suggestive. So far, the really well uh, controlled studies have not um, shown benefit, but I actually don't think that those, the best studies have been done yet. I think the best studies uh, should follow the um, probably the protocol of Zelenko and, and treating people in the outpatient setting who are relatively early in their disease, but in a double-blind, very well-controlled con fashion. We, are we going to wait for those studies before we treat these people? Well, maybe that's not the best thing because how safe is this? Well, if you have patients who do not have electrolyte imbalances and electrolytes are the salts in the blood like the sodium and potassium if their electrolytes are fine if they don't have kidney failure if they don't have heart arrhythmias already or something um, that would predispose them to that such as prolonged qt syndrome well then those people are very safe taking it because these are the people millions of people all over the world who are taking chloroquine for months at a time and sometimes for many years at a time and they're doing just fine so I think um, if we select our patients well, and, and some of these studies that have shown safety actually are the ones who really looked out for that, who monitored electrolytes, monitored EKG, and they did not have any increased cardiac side effects. So I think uh, this whole, uh, the cardiac side effect uh, problem has been a stigma that's been attached, but that probably only really applies to those patients who are very sick in the ICU, where I don't think we should use it, and maybe to those patients who have uh, What dose should be given and for how long, George? So that depends on who you, um, who you read, of course. But one of the common um, uh, doses, doses suggested is to give uh, 400 milligrams twice a day for at day one for uh, a loading dose, or some people just give 800 milligrams altogether. And then 200 milligrams twice a day or 400 milligrams once a day for anywhere from um, four to six additional days. And what's the importance of azithromycin or zinc with it? So zinc uh, is very, very interesting. Zinc, of course, we know has antiviral properties. It's been studied pr pretty well extensively. In the laboratory, we see that zinc can inhibit the viral replication for several viruses. And, and there have been several studies on the common cold, including some people with the colds due to other coronaviruses. That is, these studies have shown that zinc indeed does uh, decrease the duration and the severity of several viral infections. So it's been a, a really interesting uh, drug to look at. And we know that uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine act as what's called an ionophore. I mean, they help zinc to get into the cells. They seem to work together with zinc in a synergistic fashion. So, so because of that, uh, zinc has been added to the mix. And I think that zinc is a very safe thing to take as long as you're not uh, taking, oh, let's say more than about 10 lozenges a day. And um, it can be very helpful. Some of the other uh, studies done in the past did show that um, people who had low zinc levels 
benefited from zinc much more when they had viral infections compared to those people who already had high zinc levels. And that makes sense that if, if you don't have the deficiency, your body has enough to work. But it's a very, very safe intervention. And I think uh, it, it's, I would definitely recommend giving that with hydroxychloroquine. We're going to take a break there and come back with more on treatment for COVID-19 after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. We're going to switch it up now for this part of the interview and ask George about corticosteroids. Uh, steroids have been talked about a lot in the news, but inhaled, low dose, high dose. George, what should we know about steroids in COVID? So steroids are really, I think, playing out as a very important part of the therapeutic approach to uh, COVID-19. Steroids, uh, corticosteroids, as you know, are different from the anabolic steroids or testosterone for bodybuilders will use. Corticosteroids are really strong immune modulators. And when we talked about the immune system before and all the different cytokines and all the different layers, corticosteroids hit multiple layers. And that's why they're such great drugs for a lot of different things. They can be used for rheumatoid arthritis, for lupus, to get a lot of different inflammatory conditions under control for asthma. But because they hit so many different layers of the immune system, that's the double edge of the sword. That's why they're so risky. They can cause immune suppression and immune suppression then can lead to more infections. So you can see again, the analogy with the firefighters, you have to have very, very careful use of your tools because if you do too little, then the fire gets out of control. If you do too much, there's too much collateral damage. So steroids um, have a place most certainly. And there are some interesting studies in, um, they, they noticed early on in the pandemic that patients who are using inhaled corticosteroids for, especially for asthma and sometimes for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema, that these patients seem to be getting severe COVID-19 at a lesser rate than other patients, even though they have these lung diseases where you expect them to get sicker. So that was a very interesting thing. And that spurred many people to think that maybe we ought to be treating um, some these patients with uh, inhaled corticosteroids. But the inhaled steroids were being used early on during the exposure and then before they got real sick. So in other words, maybe this works earlier on in treatment. Would that make sense? Yeah. And the reason why is because the uh, inhaled corticosteroids are kind of like putting the lid on the pan that's on fire. It's a very early step. But once the whole house is on fire, you're putting the covering the pan is not going to make a difference, right? So and steroids are something that we would use routinely for other respiratory ailments, especially when people get severely ill. What, what is the best time to, to use them in COVID patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think for the inhaled ones, uh, what Tom said is exactly on the mark, that the inhaled corticosteroids started early or someone who's still on it, maybe up the dose, that's where they would work best. When someone's uh, getting sicker, we've, they've seen some uh, good studies in a hospital setting with dexamethasone, which is a very potent corticosteroid given IV, that that given um, before the cytokine storm hits, but perhaps when the patient is already sick and maybe requiring some oxygen. So the patients who are sick, but not the sickest, that's probably the uh, place for the dexamethasone. Now I could oh, imagine- George, the dose of dexamethasone they've suggested is six milligrams, which is a really low dose. Um, like if we were treating someone with poison ivy, we'd probably give 10 to 15 times that much to try to calm it down. How can such a low dose be effective? Yeah, well, the, the dexamethasone, again, um, because it's a, a very potent steroid, when you give it early on, it's going to hit those cytokines that are kind of key in ramping up the storm. But if you use a higher dose, it's going to ramp down all of the immune system and then so that will make it worse. And I think that's so it's why the that balancing that, act. That, that, exactly. That appears to be the sweet spot. And should it be somebody only in people who are admitted to the hospital or would people who aren't admitted benefit from dexamethasone? Yeah. Again, now we're getting into the gray area of clinical judgment. I think there might be a place for using oral dexamethasone in that patient who you have a feeling is going to be getting worse, maybe has some lung disease. 
but not re yet ready for the hospital, that might be a place to consider oral dexamethasone. I think we need more studies on that before that can be a real recommendation. But again, in this wild, wild west scenario, you may want to consider that if you want to do the best for your patient. And what about there's higher dose steroids, methylprednisolone, otherwise known as solumedrol, that have been used uh, at a milligram per kilogram a day for five days intravenously. What's the setting where that might be beneficial? So that setting really would be um, very similar to the, um, to the dexamethasone. Because remember, the dexamethasone uh, milligram for milligram is much more potent than um, methylprednisolone. So that, uh, that one milligram per kilogram dose is really not that high for methylprednisolone. So that, that would be for the, uh, the patients who are in the hospital who are needing oxygen but haven't quite crashed yet and had that cytokine storm. Excellent. Um, remdesivir. Tell us about this. This is directly antiviral. This is, and the remdesivir was studied uh, extensively during the Ebola outbreak, and it was found not to be successful there, but in the lab, it's been shown to be a very um, versatile antiviral, blocking the replication of many, many viruses. So, of course, what's happened here with the COVID-19 is a lot of drugs that were studied before and were put on the shelf because they weren't effective, they're being brought out again, and they've been using the term repurposing, which, which makes a lot of sense. But... Uh, that gives you a head start on the research because you already have this library of drugs. So remdesivir was one of them, and it was studied in a hospital setting in very sick patients, and it was shown to have some modest benefit. So this, uh, in a double-blind randomized uh, study, was uh, placebo-controlled, was shown to, to be effective and not to have um, significant side effects. So I think this uh, drug deserves to be used in the sicker patients, and I think it um, deserves few, uh, more study. But again, remembering it's, it's probably not a silver bullet because it did not, um, it had a modest effect. I think it would be interesting to study this drug earlier on in the process because again, you wanna catch viral replication early on, just like with influenza, with the flu, we have these antivirals that are supposed to be taken within the first 48 to 72 hours, otherwise they don't have an ah. effect. So the same might go, uh, be true for remdesivir, perhaps it would work better early on. So we'll have to await those studies. A lot of research that still has to be done. But and this one definitely works. It helps. Yes, it definitely helps. And what, I guess looking at a lot of these drugs and, and talking to other colleagues, could we say that that is part of the standard of care for sure? You know, many clinicians will do different things, but I think everybody would turn to that in the hospital. I agree. The remdesivir is part of the standard of care, uh, I would say, if not every hospital in the country, most. And then convalescent sera. What is that and why is it so helpful? So convalescent sera ref refers to blood products taken from a patient who is convalescing or getting better after having a COVID-19 uh, uh, illness. And so what they've done is they take the patient's blood, they separate it out into the serum portion and concentrate the antibodies because we assume that the patient who has recovered from COVID-19 has a lot of antibodies. The body has made them to try to fight it off and has successfully fought it off. And then th that serum then is concentrated and purified to uh, avoid the transmission of viruses and given to patients. There was an uh, early disease, uh, early trial, very early on, they got a lot of press that there was a positive trial. However, that trial did not have a placebo group. So, ah. so we have to be careful on how we interpret that. Later on, there was a randomized uh, trial in China that showed a, uh, that had a placebo group that um, that did not show benefit, but that study was stopped early because they weren't able to enroll enough patients. And that was because they did it once the, uh, the pandemic was calming down in, in that part of China. So really now we have an early study that wasn't the best designed study showing promise, a second study that was well-designed, but was small and didn't show promise. So we're not sure what to do with the convalescing plasma. I think it's still something reasonable to try, especially when other things are not working. Uh, in, in these patients. And I think it, it is still being used in some hospitals and um, it would be right to go ahead and, and use it. I think it would be part of um, good medicine. You mentioned that there's a new drug out that the company Lilly has made. Tell us about this. Yes. So Lilly just uh, announced uh, the approval of a study and they're starting to enroll patients now in a phase three clinical trial. So this is very exciting. This uh, therapy is, is what you can uh, term a precise smart bomb. So um, people may have heard of that the, the virus attaches to a protein called uh, uh, 
called ACE2 in, in, in the body. And the protein on the viral side is called the spike protein. It's called the spike protein because it literally is shaped like a spike. And so that spike connects to the receptor in the respiratory sy uh, system of our bodies, and then the virus gets in. So imagine if, if that spike could be covered up so that it no longer were active. And that's exactly what neutralizing antibodies do. And, and neutralizing antibodies are antibodies produced by the body that cover up that spike protein so that it cannot move forward. And there can be other antibodies against the virus that maybe slow it down or maybe just latch onto it and don't do anything. And those are non-neutralizing antibodies. Well, Lilly has come up with a manufactured antibody that is directed at that spike protein. So that antibody theoretically will go and attach to the spike protein, block the spike protein, so that the spike protein cannot attach to the cell in the human body. Truly a smart bomb, truly very precise. And, big and question that, now. That, that line of medicines, the monoclonal antibodies, one of the reasons I think a lot of people like them is they are pretty safe because they're so targeted, right? They are very safe because they're very targeted, but it depends what they're targeting too. For example, you have some that are, are tar targeting parts of the immune system like tumor necrosis factor, which is one of the uh, cytokines. And in some of these patients, they have increased incidences of infection. So there are there is some collateral damage depending on what it targets. Presumably targeting just that spike protein is not gonna have collateral damage because the human body doesn't have that spike protein. But again, the proof will be in the pr putting in the in the phase three trials, because we've had a lot of drugs that have been laid waste on the highway. They've done great in the laboratory, but then uh, they try them in humans and they, and they don't work for whatever reason, or they have a side effect that was not foreseen before. But this is something that's very, very exciting and we'll be waiting to see what, uh, what happens. So George, the vast majority of people who get, infect, get COVID infections will not have to go to a hospital. If you that's contracted correct. COVID, and we're not sick enough to go to the hospital, what medications, if any, would you take and why? Well, it's important for our listeners to know, of course, that what I would give myself might be different to what, what I might recommend to a patient, right? Ah. Because I'm a physician in a physician's body. I know my body well. I know a lot more than the average patient who can't self-monitor as well as I can. So, so that's the, the one caveat. But, um, but if I were sick with COVID and um, not sick enough to go to the hospital, Early on, I would start hydroxychloroquine and zinc. I may not start azithromycin because uh, we didn't mention the study out of the Henry Ford hospital system, but in that uh, hospitalized patients, the ones who uh, had the azithromycin added to the hydroxychloroquine actually didn't do as well. So, so there, we still need more studies there. Um, but azithromycin do, does show some promise. But I probably would just take the, um, the zinc and the hydroxychloroquine. If I had more respiratory symptoms, maybe suggesting a super infection, I might add the azithromycin. I would start myself on inhaled corticosteroid. If I got a little worse, I might add some oral dexamethasone. And then I would, um, you know, monitor myself very, very, very closely. And is this similar to what you would do to a 50 or 60 year old outpatient? This would probably be similar to what I would do to a 60 to 65 year old who wasn't okay. having a lot of symptoms or if I had a younger patient who maybe was having some shortness of breath already, or if I had a patient who was in one of the higher risk categories, such as uh, significant heart disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, obesity, yeah, and, and so forth. So what if somebody didn't really feel that sick, they just had kind of a, a dry cough, uh, their sense of smell wasn't really affected, they felt kind of tired, would you still treat them? If they weren't in a high-risk category, I would have an informed consent discussion, and I would tend not to treat them because most of those patients are going to do very, very well with just observation, staying at home, taking care of themselves, and they'll be fine. And even though these medicines we've been discussing that, that I just discussed where I might take if I, I were sick, they, uh, they're very safe. Every medicine has side effects. Right. And, um, and they might be nuisance side effects, like hydroxychloroquine often causes diarrhea, but every once in a while, you get a diarrhea, and then you get um, a lactose intolerance with it, and then you, maybe you get a little bit dehydrated, and you could actually go down a path where you get worse. Or you might be the one in 100,000 or one in a million who has an arrhythmia from the hydroxychloroquine, and you would hate to have someone hospitalized or even die when perhaps they didn't really need that medicine. So we always have to weigh the, 
potential benefits with the potential burdens. And that's why, you know, one of the, um, the main axioms of medicine is first do no harm. George, one of the questions I get a lot is what can people do to prepare before they get the virus? I know some people have recommended the hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis, and we talked about that. Um, is there anything that you would recommend that people do in preparation of maybe getting sick? Well, I think certainly uh, be making sure there's zinc replete. And, and, you know, most people are not going to go out and get zinc levels. So I think it, it wouldn't be uh, a bad thing for anybody who, who's more concerned about getting sick, whether they're elderly or they are in a higher risk group, to go ahead and just take zinc uh, lozenges, maybe, maybe three a day. I think that would be a low risk intervention that could potentially have a high benefit in certain patients who have low zinc levels. So that would certainly be one of them. For anybody with asthma or COPD, I would not neglect the, the care of that disease. And if your doctor has recommended an inhaled corticosteroid, I would definitely be on it. I would be checking peak flow measurements. If you have that at home where you blow through a little tube and it tells you how your function is doing and making sure that your asthma and COPD is in tip top shape. For those who um, are in the higher risk categories of the elderly, you know, being very careful with your social contacts. You know, I'm, not, I'm not advocating social isolation at all because that has its own burdens. And I think um, that would be a talk, topic of a whole another show, but I think yes. uh, you know, we, we know that probably we're having more suicides and drug overdoses. And, and in right. fact, Dr. Redsfield, the uh, CDC director has says he thinks we're having more deaths from that than COVID-19 itself now. Yes. So um, any intervention we have to be careful, but I think those would be the prudent things. I think I would uh, definitely avoid handshakes and uh, practice the social distancing, wear the mask uh, when you're around other people who are not part of your family. And just uh, you know, do Zoom meetings if you don't have to do things in person. All of those things, um, as far as the surfaces go, not as important as the person-to-person -person contact, but still something to consider. Your hands sometimes can be your worst enemy, so keep your hands away from your face. Wipe down surfaces. If you, if you have one of those handy uh, UV sterilizers, you can sterilize your phone and other things. This is going to help us with other infectious diseases, actually, because yes. you know, studies have been done of phones that they're just loaded with bacteria and things. So it's not bad to have all these things sanitized every once in a while anyway. George, what about vitamin C and D? That's also been in the news. Yeah, that's been in the news, and I haven't seen any good research yet that uh, this is important. We know that vitamin D is an important uh, part of the uh, immune modulation system, but I think it's the patients who are low in vitamin D who might have uh, an issue there. So I think if a patient has been diagnosed with low vitamin D levels, they probably should be supplementing. If other people want to supplement, you know, just in case, I don't think it's harmful to take maybe 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. Um, because we do have a, a many people in our population who are relatively low. But I don't think we need to have extra high levels like some people advocate 100. I think a level over 30 is probably good enough. Um, right. There have, have been some proponents of IV vitamin C. I don't see a lot of evidence for that. So in, in other words, the, the increased vitamins only help those who are low to begin with. If, if you have normal vitamin levels in your body, vitamin C and D, an increase does not help you fight off disease. Uh, that for the most part, that's true. There, there are some situations where there's an exception. For, for example, riboflavin, higher levels probably help prevent migraine. So I do use uh, riboflavin, uh, vitamin good. B2 uh, in those instances with, without regards to levels. But for the most part, I think you're absolutely right. Now, one of the things that we wanted to touch on is a lot of these medicines have become politicized, which seems bizarre. There's almost conspiracy theories out there about them being restricted. How do you respond to people who say that there is a conspiracy restricting the use of various medicines, George? Well, I think I respond to them that I don't have clear evidence there is, but I certainly have suspicions that there are. And we have to be careful to always uh, keep our suspicions and our clear evidence separated because what happens is when we mingle the two, our thought processes go off track. And you can see that that's what's led to some of this cytokine storm in the media about uh, the hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> so, so keep your suspicions in one basket and your evidence in the other. Your suspicions should guide you to seek more evidence and should make you uh, want to inquire more and interpret things with a little more uh, callous eye. But I think jumping to conclusions is just as bad. I think there certainly is the potential for politicization here, especially because our president has advocated very publicly about hydroxychloroquine and other things. And because uh, certain governors have been reacting certain ways to the pandemic and, and maybe taking away civil, civil liberties in a way that's imprecise and not proportionate to the crisis itself. 
So George, not, you almost said something that I thought was incredibly insightful. You almost said jumping to confusion. And there has been a lot of <laughs> confusion in the media in this whole pandemic. And you've been trying to fight that through several court cases. In, in our last several minutes, what can you tell us you've learned through this involvement with being an expert regarding some of these court cases where uh, government seems to be overstepping its bounds? Yes, yeah, so these cases have uh, all involved religious liberty to one effect, to one uh, extent or another. And what I've seen is that the uh, several state governments, I've been in cases now involved in five different states, six cases total. And they, uh, the, the governors and other policymakers really have, in my opinion, often a callous disregard for the importance of uh, religious liberty in our country. Uh, they do not take the First Amendment seriously. They do not consider religious worship to be an essential function, which we all know it is essential, both spiritually and psychosocially. And we see that the uh, mitigation measures have had their toll. And one of the tolls is because they've infringed upon religious liberty. And so what I've done is I've uh, done analyses to point out that much of what they are allowing, for example, dining in restaurants, um, public protests, which they're either allowing or tolerating, going to the supermarket or letting uh, manufacturing facilities be open. When you do a, a comparison that really uh, religious services conducted in the right manner with, with certain precautions have probably less risk than a lot of these activities that they're allowing. So uh, we're really fighting back and, I, and we, we've had some good victories. So I think we are making good headway there. Yeah, tell us about the victories, George. Sure. So in uh, New York State, we, we won the case there where the, gov uh, the governor had to back down and allow religious uh, services. Uh, in Illinois, once uh, our lawsuit was filed uh, and they saw such a, a strong case, the governor withdrew his, um, his restrictions, so he did, really didn't want to get involved. In Delaware, the, uh, the case was settled before it even had to go to court. And in California, we haven't had a victory yet, but the case is still going, and it's been sent down back down to the, um, to the, the, lo uh, the local federal court. And there, I've submitted a secular declaration, and we're very confident that we will be uh, victorious there. So you think California will see mass again? Because I know what was it, the Archdiocese of San Francisco, they're not allowed to have mass except 12 people outside? Yeah, so in, in California, it's, it's uh, county by county, depending uh -huh. on which county you're in. And so in, in my uh, diocese of San Diego, we are allowed to have um, masses, but only outdoors. So indoor masses are not allowed. And so that's what we're fighting to get back. The other issue is whether uh, or not singing should be allowed, and, and we, we have looked into that and looked at the risks and benefits of, uh, of singing, and there's a, a lot of research going on in Germany, a big consortium of uh, university professors, uh, engineers, uh, speech uh, specialists, as well as physicians, showing what the real risks are with, uh, with singing, and I think we're going to make some headway there, too. George, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. This is going to be very helpful to our listeners. God bless you. Thank you. It's great being with you again. God bless you. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes. Since February 1st, over 13,000 children under the age of 15 have died in the United States. What percentage of them do you think died of COVID? Andrew, did, did you have any idea on this? I, I had an, an, a general idea just because I haven't met any of them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so anecdotal, but the, the numbers that you found resonated with me. Yeah, it's less than 1%. It's 0.36%. In other words, for every thousand children that died, three between three and four died of COVID. Over twice as many, eight per thousand, died of influenza. So right now, since February 1st, influenza has been more of a danger of death for children than COVID. And we never stop school or do social distancing or these other things because of influenza, at least since 1918 and 19, that I know of. And it's, it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, this is since February. That's kind of past the influenza season. So this is even kind of the wind down influenza deaths. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. So if you just look at all of the children under 15 in the country... For every 1,224,000 children under the age of 15, one has died of COVID. And for every 561,000 children, one has died of influenza. 
And it would be interesting to know too, if, if these were healthy children with no medical problems or if they were, you know, had some kind of immune compromise status, you know. Right. And our point in bringing this up is kids are going back to school now. There are going to be increased cases, but the, the chance of death in this age group is vanishingly small. And it's always a balancing of risks and benefits. And, and I think I'm kind of excited for kids to go back just because the risks of these kids going without education. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of parents who struggled at the end of last term uh, doing the virtual learning. And so the idea that kids might go even longer without education, there are real harms there that I see on a regular basis. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing, but I, I'm excited that kids are going to be able to get back into school. I am thrilled for it, too, because uh, in an article that I was one of the authors on, we cataloged all the harms of these non-pharmaceutical interventions like closing down schools. And I agree. I think there are more people uh, having harm from non-COVID things than from COVID uh, than we would have had if we weren't doing these non-pharmaceutical interventions. So uh, I think it's time to uh, balance the risks of getting together with the risks of not getting together. And I, I think it's worth saying too, it, it sure sounds like on this program, we've pivoted big time from being super worried to not worried to anything. But really what we're seeing is we're learning a lot more about this virus at the beginning we didn't know. And as we learn more, now things are making a lot more sense. And I think everybody's feeling comfortable with trying to get back towards normal life. But with precautions. And as we continue to do that, we thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And be sure to send us your questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.